Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the WTF1 That Time When podcast. It's been a little while since I have said that and it feels good. Tommy, Dan, how are you both? Oh, very well. I'm good. Very well. We're not supposed to be looking at each other, you told me, to uh, improve audio quality, but we've both looked at each other. Uh, we're just giving a cheeky deep, little... Just can't help it. Deep yeah. concentration eyes. Now, today we are talking about the time when the Red Bulls collided at Turkey 2010. Big moment in Formula One Red Bull history. I wouldn't say it's one of the biggest moments in F1 history, full stop, but it was pretty, pretty spicy, wasn't it? It was very spicy at the time. Yeah. Now... 2010, not too long ago, not even 10 years ago. What was F1 like back then? Very close. A lot closer than it is now, unfortunately. I mean, we have the three top teams uh, in 2019, but they are separated by quite a bit. 2010, for those that don't know about it, if you can find a graphic online that shows, is it the championship lead, how many times it changed during the season? I don't think anyone led the championship for more than about one race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Sebastian Vettel won the championship without ever leading, I believe, as well. Yeah, it yeah. was the final, final day, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Only driver since James Hunt to do that. Well, thank you very much, Dan Thorne. The uh, fountain of the knowledge. Facts. Love it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, four different winners in the first six races from f- three different teams. That is quite the dream, you'd have to say, yeah. wouldn't you? That's, that's a dream for an F1 fan. And the Red Bull was the fastest car, but it was unreliable. So, yeah. had the Red Bull been you know, rock solid... I always found the Red Bull just absolutely annihilated qualifying, though, because they were on rails and there was all the controversy that just had outrageous downforce for qualifying. But then in the races, things seemed to happen, like reliability or drivers would make mistakes and stuff. Yeah, uh, the first race was in Australia and Vettel would led it and then he had a... No, it was in Bahrain that year, wasn't it? And then he mm-hmm. led it and then had an exhaust problem and dropped to fourth. And then in the second race in Australia, he was leading, but had an issue and crashed out. So it was kind of, you had a lot of teams winning, but Red Bull were kind of the fastest car. Um, McLaren were probably the most consistent. And then Ferrari sort of fluctuated race to race. Like one race, they'd be good. Another race, they'd be sort of nowhere. Back when McLaren actually won races. Yeah. Throwback. Throwback to and nine Ferrari. years ago. And Ferrari as well. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's very true. There yeah. were no Mercedes winning uh, back then, was there, in 2010? They but, weren't. But yeah. they were around, weren't they? they? First year, wasn't First it? Year was yeah, because yeah. it just replaced Braun. But yeah. they weren't up to scratch yet, really. No, no. So today we're actually talking about the Turkish Grand Prix in, in particular, which was the seventh race of the year. And as you've mentioned, you know, it was very close to the start of the season. A lot of drivers up there fighting, not potentially in qualifying, but in the race. And Weber took pole from Hamilton. And uh, Vettel had another car issue, which caused him to start third. Yeah, yeah, he had a, a roll bar loose on his car. And uh, so it looked like Weber had out-qualified him by half a second, but actually Vettel had a problem. But that wasn't to say that Weber wasn't fast, because he was on an incredible run of form. Yeah. Where he dominated in Spain and Monaco, and was now on pole in Turkey. He shared the lead of the championship with Vettel, and was, you know, it was the first time in his career that he challenged for the championship, and he was sort of stepping up to it. Now yeah, is it, is I thought, sorry, sorry is, it, is it fair that 
you know, for people that maybe didn't watch Formula One back in 2010, is it fair to say that the Vettel Weber teammate sort of rivalry is similar to Hamilton Bottas in some ways in terms of talent and how they're seen? Well, that, that's what I was about to say that um, you just reminded me there, Dan, about saying about Monaco. Um, they just finished in a one two position. Uh, in Monaco, hadn't they? And uh, was it one two? They were. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it was still a bit quite bromancy at that point. They, it, it all seemed like, oh, Red Bull, we've got a really good car this year, and we're doing really well, and everything seemed fine between uh, Weber and Vettel at that point. And a lot of people uh, listening to this podcast, if they've only started watching F one recently, will know that that rivalry got quite bitter with Multi Twenty One and. And this crash was the main, the main sort of start point to it. Multi twenty one being the uh, moment in Malaysia where twenty thirteen, uh, yeah, twenty thirteen, where well, it was a few years after this, but uh, there were a few moments where their relationship was tested. This being one of them. So the top four uh, were very close to each other for most of the race. Vettel got ahead of Hamilton in the first round of pit stops, which promoted him to second. 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 It was it was a race between. Uh, it was a really good race between Red Bull and McLaren. Uh, Ferrari weren't really there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was the two, yeah, <laughs> the two Red Bulls at the front, followed by the two McLarens. And Weber was sort of, um, he, he, was, he was leading, but wasn't he like backing the pack up quite a bit? Yeah. Uh, well, and everyone started to close in on him. Well, it was this weird situation where you had Red Bulls, which were amazing in the corners. But then that year, McLaren had basically pioneered this technology, the F-duct which this was before we had DRS. So basically it was a system where there would be basically a, a tunnel, if you like, that went from the front of the car alongside the cockpit and then up through the engine cover and the engine cover joined the rear wing. So if you imagine a shark fin, but actually touching the rear wing. And basically McLaren figured out this way to utilize the airflow where there'd be a sort of switch. So there'd be a hole in the cockpit and the driver would cover that hole with his arm or his knee and that would change the airflow in such a way to stall the rear wing and give them higher top end speed. It was, so ins- it was insane. It was I a remember. crazy it, technology, yeah. Uh, other, dr- other teams started developing that, didn't they, during the season? Yeah. Uh, and it got to the point where if you, if you watch a YouTube video from 2010, search for like a pole lap or something, and you'll see drivers going one-handed round corners just to... Oh, they went one-handed up Eau Rouge right, yeah. to try and... Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, Radion. Uh, Radion. Oh, no. <laughs> Let's not uh, do that. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, they uh, it, that was an insane little bit of... Okay, I quite like that era where different teams could develop different things. Like you say, Red Bull were insane in the corners, but McLaren had that straight line speed. Yeah, yeah, it was a good... Little, uh... So they were having their battle, Red Bull and McLaren, and uh, Red Bull were looking like they were okay in the lead and, and Vettel closed in on Weber. Yeah. Uh, and lap 40 came around where Vettel goes to pass Weber on the straight, I guess, towards, or in the last sector, the uh, the long, long straight. Down the hill, turn 12. Yeah. Airpin. I mean, he, um, knows, he knows the corner names and, and or corner numbers. Uh, and Vettel tries to pass Weber for the lead and, and they collide. It was, a, well, from what I remember, I remember it being obviously being very shocking, but also you didn't really see it coming and then it would just kind of swiped across. Was it Vettel or Weber that, it was Vettel yeah. that swiped across. Didn't yeah. Vettel, Vettel went up the inside and he'd, he'd got a great run on Weber and you could slip through him all the way down that straight, kind of follow into that fast right-hander. Uh, he'd got the move 
pretty much done. Weber had left him enough space. Yeah. And then rather than uh, Vettel breaking down uh, the inside and just turning left, he comes right back over towards Weber's racing line. And that's when they collide. Yeah, he tried to sort of block Weber off, but hasn't got far enough in front and front wing to rear rear tire contact the sort of thing that you still see a lot today puncture for one driver broken front wing for the other yeah vettel goes spinning out of the race weber crawls around back to the pits with a broken front wing and vettel um, was absolutely fuming from what i remember he almost felt hard done by um yeah i, I seem to remember a qu- quite famous image of him uh sort of red mist like very red in the face and he was giving the whole um oh yeah mental, uh, like, your like, mentor by like, I, like as, circ- as we're on audio circling your ear. finger around your head to the sort of thing you do when you're six in a playground and yeah. want to tell your friend they're not very clever yeah <laughs> <laughs> um he was Certainly. not a happy boy but yeah to go back to what you were saying about weber and the fuel situation because that's quite a, a point um weber was at the front of the trainer car so he had no slipstream so he was using a bit more fuel than those behind him. Vettel had managed to save fuel. Um, but So he was faster at that stage of the race, but uh, they couldn't enact a team order because McLaren were right behind them. Weber had to go into a fuel-saving mode. Vettel had another lap of full power, and that's why he was able to attack. He, right. he could catch right up, couldn't he? And he had, he had so much more power down that straight, you could tell easily. Yeah. Um, the days before DRS, it looked it almost looked like he had DRS. The amount of speed that he yeah. took compared to Weber, um, and yeah, not not good for Red Bull because they, like we were saying earlier, they had a a, a very fast car that was capable of winning the championship. You could even argue that in uh, two thousand and nine, the previous year, they could have won the yeah, championships. Yeah. Um, because Braun dropped off at the end of the season. And again, they had reliability issues and a few crashes. And the last thing they needed when McLaren and Ferrari were being picking up points all the time was their two drivers to crash into each other. Which they did. And it caused uh, a lot of heartache uh, after that. And potentially that, that bromance started to, to, to wane a little bit. That's where it got very sour, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the start of it, I think. And back to the race now. So... It took Weber completely out of contention. Uh, he pit with front wing damage. Did he? Yeah, so he dropped he to third and to he, third? Was a, he was like 30, 40 seconds behind. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love how but, he still only dropped to third despite all of that. Yeah. 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 They were so That's much how. quicker than. Like the Ferraris were scrapping for the, like the lower end of the top 10. Like they were that far off the pace. And then it was Mercedes and sort of fifth and sixth. Just, right. Just chilling. Just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Vettel was out. So um, bad news for his championship challenge. Well, he won anyway, so I'm sure he doesn't look at it, look back at it that badly. No. Um, but so yeah, Hamilton then led the race from Button, and light rain then hit the track, which I think would have been very interesting had we had the two Red Bulls as well in the mix uh, with that particular battle. Uh, Button tries to pass Hamilton for the win on lap 47 after some team radio confusion. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of a similar situation to Red Bull, really. I mean, you had the light rain, which never really materialised. It was kind of that, you know, it's going to rain in five minutes sort of thing. And then it never did. I think there were a few drops, but I think the drivers were a bit cautious when they maybe didn't need to be sort of thing. But it was the same thing where uh, they were critical on fuel and tyres because Turkey was quite a harsh track on tyres because of incredible corners like Turn 8, which we'll get onto a bit later. Yeah, um, But 
yeah, basically there was team radio messages to Hamilton and Button saying like, oh, save fuel, uh, save fuel and tyres. But at that time, team radio or team orders rather were banned. Mm. So McLaren's kind of intention with that was, I think it was a coded message to, to back off and don't battle each other. Whereas, Especially because of what had happened to the Red Bulls. Yeah. They didn't want the same thing to happen Imagine. to them, obviously. Yeah. So Hamilton, you know, took it as that, you know, it's a message to back off and not race each other. Button took it as a literal message to save fuel and save tyres, which he did, but then thought, hang on, I can still get Hamilton. So he tried to pass him into turn 12. Um, the same place. The same place that uh, Vettel would hit Weber. Yeah. And it's like just a few laps yeah. afterwards, so you're thinking, oh God, it's going to happen again. Yeah. But, but they uh, kept it clean, didn't they? They kept it clean. Um, Hamilton got back ahead by turn one, and that was sort of it. But it, I love that about Turkey, the, the final sector. Um, if you watch the move, it's that classic turkey move where you can go up the inside and then you, you can always switch back into the corners because yeah. the way the track flows, um, you're on the inside and then you lose momentum. So Hamilton could keep the racing line, go back on the inside. And I, I think there may have been slight contact. I don't think it, there was nothing major, but Hamilton definitely sent it down the inside to be like, no, you're not yeah. getting yeah. this. And then I think the McLarens kind of saw sense and thought, we can't do this. Yeah, they told them the message again. Like, I think they got the Save message. <laughs> the damn fuel. Yeah. <laughs> like you got a one-two on the cards when your rivals are pretty much out of it, you know. It was a huge, yeah, huge moment for the Constructors' Championship and, well, the Drivers' Championship as well because at this point, uh, they were all in it. I mean, 2010 was quite famous because I think... Uh, there, there were four drives in the last race, but I think even the penultimate race, it was, it was, Button, Hamilton, Alonso, Weber, and Vettel could all win the title. Yeah. Which wow. is madness, isn't yeah. it? Absolute madness. Uh, so as you say, Hamilton held, him, held Button off for the win. Button finished second, and Mark Weber was third. Now, the aftermath after this, so all the analysis, it was replayed many, 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 many times. Uh, many fans felt Vettel was wholly at fault, which I think is fair to say. Yeah, I mean, he cut back over um in front of Weber but the the most shocking thing um and this was the early days of uh Red Bull and Helmut Marco which everyone now know he's a very outspoken chap yeah um but we didn't really know a lot about him at that time Red Bull was still a fairly newish team especially fighting at the front yeah and uh the most shocking thing about it was without any kind of hesitation Helmut Marco went straight into an interview and pretty much blamed Weber, right? Yeah, there was a yeah. Marco said some some strange things, which aren't strange now, but at the time it was like whoa. Because um, actually, before I get onto that, you say you believe it was Vettel's fault. It's funny because I found a comment from you on uh, F1 fanatic back at the time. Oh, in wow, 2010. Here we go. Hello, this and, is like uh, this is standard Twitter. And you is. said it was both of their fault. Vettel had the line, but was stupid to pull back over. But Weber should have given him more room. I'd say it was sixty percent Vettel, forty percent Weber's fault. Oh, interesting. Nine well, years ago, Tommy <laughs> there you go. versus present Tommy. I was probably a bit of a Vettel fanboy at the time as well. Too fair. Yeah, your profile picture is of Vettel at the time. So. <laughs> there you go. Dan, um, Dan's done a proper like thing that you see on yeah. Twitter these days where yeah. we go through the timeline. Yeah, <laughs> I found a tweet from you from 2009. That says, your views aren't allowed to have changed in nine years. <laughs> yeah. Why are you lying? You are the no. same person. Yeah. No. So um, that was an unusual reaction. What exactly do, do you, either of you know what was said by, by Helmut? Yeah, uh, Marco said that 
he felt that Weber should have let Vettel pass, which I guess is kind of a valid thing because he got the McLaren's bearing yeah. down and Weber's slower. But then he said, Sebastian was ahead. There was a corner coming, so he had to move into his line. He couldn't have braked on the dirt. It's unbelievable how unlucky Vettel is. He showed so much speed. And if you have all these incidents, it's unbelievable how strong his morale and commitment is. Wow, you can really so he tell really who... Uh, yeah. I mean, for, for the record, um, in case you didn't know, uh, obviously Mark, Mark Webber had been in Formula One for a fair while. Yeah. Um, and was brought on uh, for Red Bull when? Uh, not the very uh, first 2007. season, but 2007, uh, as a more experienced driver. Uh, Vettel, however, was... A very much kind of uh, it was like, like the Verstappen, kind of the first young Red Bull yeah, Junior to really succeed. The, the real sort of super wonder kid that had done unbelievably well. He'd won for Toro Rosso, uh, had an amazing debut in two thousand and seven for Toro Rosso, won for Toro Rosso in two thousand and eight. So Red Bull, I don't think there's any denial, and this pretty much cemented it that they wanted Vettel to win the championship. Yeah, because he was. Red Bull through and through. They'd time. found him as a kid on, you know, Michael Schumacher's cart track or whatever and <laughs> brought him through the ranks to greatness, basically. Yeah. So it was more of a like Cinderella story. Yeah, like, hang like. on, Weber, you're not supposed to be this good sort of thing. And it's like, yeah. they kind of didn't really know how to, uh, like, how to deal with it. I mean, Christian Horner was slightly more diplomatic. Um, he kind of just said, you know, it was kind of they shouldn't have done it, but he also kind of implied that Vet or Weber was to blame, just saying that Sebastian had a pace advantage, so Mark shouldn't have squeezed him, even though he didn't squeeze him. Sort no, of thing. it was Vettel that very much changed the line, wasn't it? Yeah, as yeah. opposed to, to Weber. So very, very interesting. And obviously, Weber himself felt that he, uh, the team favoured Vettel, and uh, I think we've had a few examples as to to why he felt that way. Yeah, and yeah. then later later in the season, there was the um, not bad for a number two driver comment, which uh, happened after they uh, Vettel damaged his wing, and then they swapped. They yeah, gave the new, yeah. they gave they uh, one wing new front wing each, and yeah. Vettel, that got damaged, so they took it from Weber and gave it to Vettel, and then Vettel Weber, but then won, Weber the won the race anyway. Uh, well, a pretty good, pretty good drive, wasn't it? Pretty, yeah, pretty yeah, drive. yeah. On his day, Weber was absolutely like when he got fired up. It was it was quite hard to stop sometimes. You had to make him feel like a number two driver for him to win. That's uh, well, they certainly did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were just catering to his needs. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the actual track itself. As uh, to be fair, Turkish Grand Prix, Istanbul Park. I've never never been, but playing it on games, it was one of my favourites to drive purely because it's just such, such a cool track. You know, Turn Eight, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Dan. What an absolute corner that! Is. Well, it wasn't just Turn Eight, was it? It was Turn Eight Nine. Ten. Ten. Oh, no, oh, no it was, it was turn eight was the complex, wasn't it? It was, turn, it was a, a, basically it was a force like a, it had four apices. Mm. It was a left hander, and it was pretty much flat out like hundred. Was it known as turn eight, nine, ten, and eleven? Then no, was it, just no eight? It, was, cool. it was just turn eight. It was just turn eight. Okay, yeah. interesting. But turn eight, I mean, what a corner! Uh, you, you've mentioned it yourself. Um, was it the best ever Tilka track? I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think aside from turn eight, it was pretty vanilla. I think. Wow. I like I liked it. It's, uh, it's I do track. agree I that it it, I thought it, it is definitely one of his better ones. And of all the tracks, the fact that that one is no longer on the calendar is a massive shame. Yeah, I feel like it produced some really good racing as well. Um, you know, th- this was definitely the standout race. But I seem to remember there was 
plenty of overtakes going into that section and as we mentioned earlier such a great section at the the final third sector for you know switching back into um allowing cars to you know switch back and travel side by side for much of the much of the lap so we never had drs around no. the track, did we oh uh, yeah we did the year after oh, did we and i remember it being like it was the first year of drs and it was OP, overpowered wasn't it? really yeah. op i think that drs would have spoiled that track uh, it, it i think really if they'd did. done it right if they'd done it right it might have been okay if it possibly just, yeah because they I just d- need the detection so much further down the straight yeah yeah because it was i think i remember actually now uh, now that you say it, you know they, they would have cleared the car and have quite a few car lengths on said car before yeah. they even break. Yeah, the break back straight going down into that final complex sort of went up a hill and then round a kink and then down the hill to the hairpin. Yeah. But when DRS came, the cars were getting the passes done before the kink in the straight. And yeah. it was it was really it was overpowered. Gone. Uh, should it return? Should this track return? I would like to see it return. Um, yeah. I don't think it's in any state to return from what I've heard. But Isn't, wasn't it? being turned into a car dealership at one it was, point i think that i think it was used for like storage for yeah, like a like a car dealership a car dealership yeah i'm sure um, i remember seeing that I, I don't i haven't seen ra- any racing on it for years no. so i'm assuming it's not it's such a shame those those tracks where you know tracks fall off the calendar all the time and you know we've mentioned in the past like manny core and a lot of squeaking going on in the background um yeah, Carry sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, Manny Core uh, and tracks like that at Imola, but at least they still host races. Yeah. Whereas Turkey just doesn't do anything, which is a shame. Yeah. It's not as, you know, I don't think there's many people that look at that track and think, that was, yeah, that deserved to go. Yeah, it, it may not have been a favourite, but I think it was a decent track and it ha- we had some, some good races there. Yeah. I think so, it's unfortunate that it was in Turkey. Like, no disrespect to Turkey, but just if it had been built in base. a, you know, if Cota or something had been that circuit. Yeah. I mean, Cota does essentially have turn eight, doesn't it? Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. copied it, so. Yeah. Uh, any, anything else from either of you guys on the uh, Turkish Grand Prix from 2010? Any other nuggets of information? I've got a fact here from uh, Dan that says, uh, I don't actually like Formula One uh, from 2006. <laughs> I love how you call it a fact, not a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, chaps. And uh, that is it for the That Time When podcast for the 2010 Turkish Grand Prix. Uh, if you want to leave us a review, please do. Uh, it's nice to nice to be back and having a chat with uh, both of you gentlemen. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, let us know uh, any others that you would like to see in the future. And uh, we will see you very soon. Give us a five-star rating on whatever you're listening on with, with your ears. Apple. Mainly Apple. You can't do it on Spotify, Podcasts, unfortunately. But Spotify Apple, get on there and five stars. Five stars. Even if you're listening on Spotify. Even if you disagree. Even if, yeah, just screenshot we're blackmailing it. you to be right fair, now. If you've made it to this part in the video, you love it. Video? video? Oh, my God. Oh, God Audio. I'm so, I'm so bad. I'm just so used to presenting. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody. Goodbye. And uh, see you soon. Bye. Good bovril. Bovril. Beefy busy bovril. Get that beef on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. 
Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.